Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, uh, Mark chapter 8, and we'll be reading verses uh, 27 through 38. Our text will be 31 through 38, but I want us to have a little bit of a, a context from last week. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, uh, see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and for the fact that it will endure. Lord, we live in very turbulent times, many things going on. The world and, and its agenda, it seems to be oh so strong. And sometimes as, as Christians, we can be weary, we can be uh, tossed here and there. But Lord, I pray that we can just listen to your word this morning, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit and uh, not only instruct us, oh God, but Lord, call us to yourself that we might look to you, the hope that we have only in the one who is the true Son of God. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, have you ever thought that you knew someone because you have learned something about them? Maybe you learned where they were born or, or where they work, and, and you assume that you knew everything about that person. Has that ever been the case? You know, maybe you knew what part of the country, the state they were from, or what kind of job they did. And you just sort of filled in the blanks with your own mind, assuming all the, the things that you thought were true about them. Well, if that has ever happened to you, I'd love to just ask you, how's that worked out for you? Rarely does that work out well, does it, when we make those assumptions about people? Well, that's sort of what we see going on this morning in our text with the disciples and Jesus. They had finally come to this sort of this realization that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And yet, 
just because they finally knew this important truth about Jesus didn't mean they really understood who he was or what he came to do. As a matter of fact, uh, no sooner did they make this momentous confession, you know, where Peter said, Jesus, you are the Christ, uh, that they found that they were really actually confused and didn't understand exactly what that meant that Jesus was the Messiah. And so we see Jesus sort of calling them to question what they thought about him and his role as the Messiah. And so I want us to dig in to this passage this morning. And as we do, let us remind, be reminded what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, what it is that he had come to do. Because it's important, because if we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, I mean, we must learn who he is and what it is that he came to do. We cannot uh, properly follow Jesus unless we also know his mission. Did you hear that? We, we cannot properly follow Jesus if we don't know what his mission is, what he has come to accomplish. Maybe, maybe a, another way to say that is that a wrong view of Jesus' messiahship leads to a wrong view of what discipleship is. And uh, so let's look at this passage this morning. And first of all, let's look at Jesus' mission in verse 31, actually in the first part of 32. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days arise again. And he said this plainly. Now, I want you to notice several things that Jesus says here about himself as the Messiah. First of all, he says that he's going to suffer many things and then be rejected by the religious authorities. Then finally killed, but then he would rise again from the dead after, after three days. And it says that he conveyed these things plainly. In other words, he didn't say these in parables. He said this so simply that anybody could understand. And, and notice that Jesus says that these things must happen. It, it was part of his messianic mission. Uh, it was determined by God the Father from the foundation of the world that these things had to happen in order for Jesus Christ to save a people for the Father. Now, R.C. Sproul, I appreciated his comments at this point. He points out that the religious leaders had diligently examined every detail and every dimension and every aspect of what it meant that, you know, this Messiah, this Old Testament Messiah was coming. They could tell you everything about him because this was a very important uh, concept for an, an, uh, a person that the Jewish people were looking for. And, and there were many dimensions of the Old Testament prophecies that were given about this Messiah. He was to be a king. He was a shepherd, he was a redeemer, and, and the list goes on and on and on. We don't have time to talk about all of the things that the Messiah would uh, entail. But there was one element that the rabbis seemed to overlook, or at least that they seemed to misunderstand, and that is that the Messiah would suffer. Even though we have Isaiah 52, even though we have Isaiah 53, we have Psalm 22 and other such passages is these things that clearly talk about the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, they didn't get it. And so when Jesus begins to teach his disciples what it meant to be 
the Messiah, they were, they were shocked because this wasn't something that was clearly taught. And as you know, that it was understood to be that the Messiah would come and deliver the Jews from their oppressors. From, that would be the Romans. Um, but they had never heard such things as this before. And so, what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. Now, kids, some of you have teachers. Some of you may be too young, but most of you are old enough. You have teachers. And it would be one thing to disagree with your teacher. That would be hard, wouldn't it? But it's quite another thing to rebuke your teachers. That means to correct or to scold your teachers. Could you imagine doing that, kids? Yeah, you're sitting there thinking, no way, Pastor Rick. There's no way I'd do that. And that's good. You should not do that with your teachers, okay? But especially if you're homeschooled, because then not only are you correcting your teacher, you're correcting most likely your mother or your father as well, which is just doubly bad, okay? So, so you want to do that. But that's really what, what Peter did here with Jesus. He, he rebuked him. He corrected him. Uh, Peter truly believed that Jesus was the Messiah, just not the Messiah that Jesus was explaining. In our text earlier, Jesus was saying suffering and rejection and death must happen. And Peter was saying, oh, that will not happen. Um, so he was rebuking Jesus. To which then Jesus goes on in verse 33, and, and he responds to Peter's rebuke. And he says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, those are pretty strong words, are they not? He's saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter was sort of speaking in the same way that Satan did in the wilderness when he, when he tempted Jesus. He was trying to redefine Jesus' ministry and say, if you just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And in the same way, uh, Peter was not speaking the words of God, but the words of man. And that's what Jesus says at the latter part of verse 33. Um, he said, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He wasn't looking at this Messiahship from God's perspective, but from man's perspective and man's way. And so Jesus, seeing Peter's understanding of the Messiah, he calls a crowd to himself along with his disciples, and then he begins to teach them. And he lays out for them what it means to follow him. Okay? What it entails to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course it doesn't entail taking up swords and fighting Romans. It doesn't include that. But instead we read in verse 34, And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this is radical discipleship. Now, I know you've heard this passage a gazillion times, and so to your ears, it doesn't sound that odd, but let's just unpack this a little bit and look at this. And as we do, maybe we'll see how radical this really is. But first of all, let me just point out, it really involves two things here, this idea of discipleship, of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. First of all, self-denial. And second of all, it is bearing the cross. Now, self-denial, that is dying, denying ourselves, dying to ourselves. Well, I was trying to think of a picture of what the self would look like, and, and uh, there's probably no better picture of the manifestation of the will of the self than a crying baby, right? I mean, think about it. They're so cute, I know, but still, if you, 
if you really look at them as, as they are crying, that the self demands to be satisfied and it will not take no for an answer, right? And that little one's not going to stop crying until you change them, until you feed them or whatever it is that it is that they want. And, you know, it'd be great if that just happened when they were babies and they grew up and then it went on, but it doesn't. Then you have the three-year-old little girl who doesn't want her hair combed, right? She doesn't want the tangles are in there. And so she tells her mom, I'll do it myself. And, and she just wants what she wants and she doesn't want that to happen. Or the little boy who's sitting at the, the dining room table and his parents tell him to, to eat the food in his plate. He goes, I don't like my vegetables. And he's, you know, crossing his hands and sort of rooting himself, you know, in determination that he is not going to do what he wants because no one uh, will be able to tell the self no. Well, that goes all the way to the 90-year-old man who's in the nursing home who has dementia and, and cannot remember a lot of things, but one thing he knows for sure, he does not like that big white pill that the nurse keeps trying to give him. And so every time she comes with that pill to give him that, he closes his lips and locks him down and he won't open his mouth so that she could put that pill in him. He stubbornly says no and tightens his lips. You see, that, that self is everywhere, is it not? I mean, we, we know that well. We, we struggle with that. Well, Jesus says it must be denied. Now, uh, Psalm 131, if you would, keep your place in Mark, but turn to Psalm 131. And I want to read this psalm. It's only three verses long. And it's sometimes been referred to as the psalm of the conquered soul. In other words, what would... What would uh, or it's conquered self, the psalm of the conquered self. What, what, what? This is what uh, sort of a picture of what your your life would look like if if your self was not ruling. Uh, Lord, my heart is not proud, and my eyes are not haughty, and I do not go after things too great and too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child on his mother, like a weaned child, my soul rests on thee. Israel, hope in the Lord, now and forever. You see, isn't that a beautiful picture? I, you're probably sitting here thinking, man, I wish I could experience this in, in my life, you know. But, but uh, uh, such a soul that is content to receive whatever the Lord gives it, content to, to lack what God decides to withhold from it, a, a soul that would relinquish what God wants to take, uh, 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 to be what, what God requires you to be, to, to suffer when you're afflicted, you, you gladly do that because you're just like a baby that's weaned by its mother. There's just a sense of rest, a sense of peace. Now, uh, Dave Pallison was uh, speaking about this psalm in an article he wrote called Peace Be Still, Learning Psalm 131 by Heart. And by the way, if you go to our church app and go to the resource section or you go to our website and go to the resource page, I put a link to that article so you can go home and, and read it this afternoon if you want. But he said, you know, uh, he said really Psalm 131 is sort of that sense of, of the self that's been conquered. But he said, if, if you sort of wrote the opposite of this psalm, you would see what the self looks like. And so Dave Powelson does that, and this is what he writes. He said, self, 
My heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. And my eyes are haughty. In other words, I look down on other people. And I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So, of course, I'm, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and my worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. Boy, that's a, that sort of hits home, doesn't it? Can anybody here relate to that? You don't show your hands, but, you know, yeah, we can. That's what we wrestle with, with the self. And Jesus says to deny that self. And, and the beauty of Psalm 131, as, as other scripture as well, is that really, uh, if you know, it says it's a song of ascent, right, of David. But you really could say a millennial later after this uh, psalm was written, you could change that title to a song of ascent of Jesus. Because Jesus lived out this song perfectly. As you read Psalm 131, you hear the internal operations of Jesus' mind, his, his internal peace, because he was here to do the will of his Father, not, not his own will. And, and the beauty of that is, is that before Jesus left this earth, he sent the Holy Spirit, and who now dwells within believers. And, and it's Jesus' Spirit that dwells in us, so that while we know that we have the remnant of the flesh that dwells within us, we also have the Spirit of God that dwells within us. That is a Spirit that understands the heart where the self has been dealt with. And I think sometimes as Christians, I, I don't mean to, to be distracted by turning to Psalm 131, but what I want us to see by doing that is that I think sometimes as Christians, we think we have the remnant of the flesh in us, and so we have no choice but to give in to the, the self and the flesh. And what I want us to see is that's not true. We also have the Spirit of God that dwells within us. And that he understands this. And he gives us such hearts as he gives us that new life. And as, as, as we deny ourselves, we have that peace that we see in the psalm. You know, we are not predestined to live according to the remnant of the flesh. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, Christianity Hard or Simple, makes the comment. He said that people often think of self-denial is like paying taxes. You pay a lot. You know, and I know for some of us we think yeah, an awful lot, right? But, but you hope you have some money left over for yourself after you pay your taxes. But you pay a lot, um, but you don't pay all your money to pay your taxes. You might feel like that sometimes, but that's not the case. But when Jesus calls you to deny yourself, he's not asking you to pay a lot. He's not asking you to uh, deny a lot of things in your life. He's asking you to give self away. He's asking you to give all of it, to deny yourself. Jesus wants all of you. He wants the very core of your being. He wants your right to go where you want to go. And he wants and to do what you want to do and to be what you want to be. He wants you to give all that up to him it's not ours it's his 
He wants us to give our lives to him. And that's the essence of what Jesus is saying. What we need is a new self at the core of our being, which he gives us to live by. But then he goes on and he says that we are to bear our cross. He goes, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, it might seem a little odd, maybe not to us as, as Christians, but for, for Mark to be writing this, why was Jesus speaking of the cross? He hadn't even gone to the cross yet. And yet, it was still well in front of him. But even so, his audience would have understood what he meant by the cross because it was a part of their life. You know, the, the cross was the chief means of execution by the Roman government and where the condemned would carry this cross beam from the place that they were judged to the place where they would be executed. And, and the disciples knew that when Jesus spoke of the cross that he was talking about execution and, and death. And, and so we know what the physical cross is, but what is the cross that Jesus is talking about? And, and the reason why I want to ask that question is because I think sometimes even as Christians, we have a little bit of misunderstanding of what it means to bear our cross. Uh, we tend to think of the cross as a difficulty to, to, to bear, a problem maybe to solve, or, or some kind of pain to endure. Now, let me give you some examples. You know, people think of their arthritis as a cross or they think of maybe a difficult marriage they're in as a cross or, or they think of their dead-end job as a cross or maybe their harsh boss or their difficult kids whatever the, the the trial is in their life they think of that as the cross that and they say that's just the cross that I have to bear but that's not what the cross is the cross is is not a difficulty or a trial the cross is an instrument of execution. It's something that puts us to death. So suffering is not the cross. It only becomes a cross if it comes from the cause of Christ. If we are allowing, if we allow the suffering to kill our natural self, our, our independence, our autonomy, a right to be a law unto ourselves, then, yes, then, then it's a cross. If it loosens the root system of your soul in this world, you know, if it's like, you know, you go out and you dig up a bush, if you go and you, you dig up a bush and you just decide, you know, I, I don't, I, I got too many things to do today. I don't have time to dig the whole thing up. I'm just going to cut the thing off at the top. What's going to happen? It's going to come back. You got to dig it all the way down to the roots uh, or to get rid of it. And God uses the shovel of pain and suffering and trials to dig up the roots of worldliness in our souls. And it's only as God uses his instruments to kill our desires for this world that we're free to think of another world, to think of a heavenly world, perfect, where we live in complete intimacy with God. And that's what the cross does. It, it, it kills us. And it loosens our grip on the world, freeing us to think of God and, and the world to come. Now, think about Mark's audience, if you would, for just a second. You know, uh, you know, the image of the cross signifies a total claim of a disciple's allegiance. You know, a total sort of relinquishing of our lives and our resources to the Lord. God, it's all yours. But in Mark's day, that wasn't just a theoretical truth. That's where they lived. They were living most likely under Nero 
and his persecution and where he was crucifying Christians on a regular basis. And Jesus' call to self-denial and suffering by the use of this image would remind Mark's community that their adversity under Nero was not a sign of God's abandonment of them, but rather of their identification with and faithfulness to the way of Jesus himself. Did it show God's love for them? Because it's so easy, is it not, as we go through the sufferings and those trials, those difficulties, as God is using those things to, to reach our soul, to deny ourselves, to, to die to this world, we can sometimes look at that process and it's so painful and we just say, Lord, where are you? Do you not love me? Have you abandoned me? And he says, no. No, it's not a sign of my abandonment. It's my, it's, 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 I do that because you were identified with me. Because I love you. Because I want what's best for you. And so brothers and sisters, we need to fight against the mindset that the life for a Christian will be easy. I know we, we think that. We're still surprised when things are difficult. But Jesus was saying, if you want to follow me, don't expect an easy time. Don't expect to have all your hopes and your wants and your expectations met. <coughs> our, our mindset as Christians is to take up a cross beam and to carry it with us every day because Jesus says, my disciples must be ready to endure disgrace and shame and death. Now we might know that intellectually, but we are still surprised, are we not, brothers and sisters, when God actually brings that into our lives. Now, the world would say, it's interesting, they, they would say that this is not a very good way to make disciples, right? Come to me, deny yourself, die. You know, if you want to make more disciples, you probably shouldn't describe your discipleship program as that of self-denial and comparing it with going on a death march. Really not a way to in, you know, win friends and influence people, right? But that's, that's part of the point that Jesus is wanting to make. That this is a radical call by Jesus, and, and it's one that distinguishes his followers from the rest of the world. His followers are ones who will radically follow him. They're realizing that life in this world is different because they know Jesus. Because they know Jesus. For the Christian, life in this world would now be radically redefined. For, for the Christian, life is to be about following Christ. It involves that self-denial. It involves that living as dead to the world. Well, the opposite response that the world has to what Jesus says, uh, the opposite response is to reject Christ and this call for radical discipleship. Instead, Jesus describes uh, this response in this way. He said, you see, that's, uh, excuse me, Jesus describes the alternative response in verse 36 of uh, trying to gain the whole world. The, the world says, you know, it's, it's uh, you don't want to follow Jesus. That's, that's, that's too radical. You know, we need to instead to, um, you know, follow the world. And Jesus says, that's exactly what it is. You see, that's what the world's about. The world is about the self. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or not, but the world lives 
uh, an inward focus, looking to improve oneself. Everybody ought to get to do what they want to do. Everyone is trying to earn the whole world by their actions. Everyone's trying to get ahead, usually at the expense of others, and without concern for God's plan for their lives. And yet, this kind of response has eternal consequences. And that's, that's what Jesus is talking about. And that brings us to our third point. And uh, I'm going to use Calvin's uh, terms here. He really sees this last part, verses 35 through 38, as sort of a meditation on the future life. So what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It means self-denial. It, it, it means bearing the cross, but it also means meditating on the future life. In other words, understanding our life now in light of eternity. So Jesus makes that clear. How, how do you respond to Jesus has ramifications to your very life and soul. Jesus acknowledges this and points out really sort of a paradox in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Now obviously he has two different lives in view here. One life is a life apart from Christ, full of selfishness and sin, a life that's merely a life that like we live here on this earth, but then the other life is the eternal life that comes with Christ. It's a true life that endures beyond this age. It's, it's eternal life. And from a Christian perspective, we would call this the old life and the new life. Right? Jesus calls Christians to lose that first life, lose their old life, to, to take on the new life. People who cling to their old life do so at the expense of losing the new eternal life that is offered to them. And so whoever desires to save their life of sinfulness and rebellion against God will lose their eternal life and even their current existence when Jesus comes to judge the earth. And I say that, brothers and sisters, because there are people who do that. There are people who want to profess Jesus Christ, and yet they want to hang on to their old life. And it's like, let's just play both sides of the ditch, right? And let me see if I can have everything. And Jesus says, no, you won't have everything. As a matter of fact, you'll end up with nothing. You'll lose your very life. You see, when Christ comes again, he will come as a judge. And anyone who has clung to their life of rebellion will find eternal damnation. They will lose even what life they did not have. And I just think how sad it is for the countless number of people who will spend eternity in hell. But they thought they were safe because they were playing Jesus on one side. They weren't realizing that they were also playing the other side as well. You see, as Christians, if we come in faith to Christ, willing to give up our old life and live instead for Christ, then we have already begun to taste the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. By denying ourselves and taking up our cross and dying to this world, we actually don't find death, but what we find is we find life. We find freedom. We find life that is true. It, and Jesus describes this, these different responses, first in verse 36, uh, as he talks about values. What do you truly value, Jesus asks. Do you value earthly wealth and treasure over your very life and your soul? Is, is worldly success for the flu, few fleeting years that you're here on this earth, is that worth it, losing your soul over what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So it's what you value. 
But then in verse 38, he talks about, makes the point in terms of shame. Some are ashamed of Jesus. They're ashamed of the way of the cross. Now think about this. If the world promotes self, and that's, that's a really helpful paradigm, by the way, as you think about people and how they interact with one another, you know, in the office or on social media, wherever it is, you go, oh, yeah, they're just following the world. They're just promoting what they want and their self. If that's what the world promotes, then they are going to have a problem with Christians who are denying themselves and taking up their cross. If you are ashamed of Christ, he'll be ashamed of you when he returns. He will come to judge those who are ashamed of him when he returns in his glory. But to us who believe, we are not ashamed of Christ. Then when he returns, he will not be ashamed of us. Uh, to, to such a person, Christ is precious. And, and people can say all the things they want to say. The world can throw whatever it wants to throw at them. And it won't bother them. You know, when I was in uh, Bangladesh, uh, you know, I've said probably a hundred times how we were attacked by Muslims and the van that we were in was destroyed. But what struck me uh, that maybe I haven't ever shared with you is that the pastor, the, the local pastor that was taking us, driving us around, he had been through a number of those attacks. He had been physically assaulted for his faith. And his response was, praise Jesus that I get to suffer for his name. Praise Jesus that I get to suffer for his name. He is our very life. He is the life beyond our life. This morning as, as we hear this, I, I want to, I hope in one sense this passage encourages you. You know, I think oftentimes we can focus on, so how are you doing? in terms of denying yourself, or how are you doing in terms of bearing your cross? And there's a sense in which we need to ask that. And I'm going to ask some of those questions at the end of my sermon. But I also want to encourage you with this passage as well. Uh, it's very serious. It, it is stuff that we should be contemplating. And we should be asking ourselves, do we understand Christ's mission properly? Are our lives aligned with his mission? Or are our lives more aligned with this world and the priorities of this world, and we just have some priorities regarding Jesus? Those are good questions to ask. Do we follow him in the way he commands us? Or are we more interested in earthly glory and therefore unwilling to follow a Savior who leads us in the way of the cross? If you find yourself twisted inside, wanting to follow Christ, but just not sure about this radical discipleship and all that it entails, I, I would like to point you to Peter, Peter as an encouragement in this passage. Now, think about that. Peter is the one who rebuked Jesus. He, he wanted a Messiah who would usher in earthly glory. He wanted a Messiah who would restore the nation of Israel to its political, geopolitical uh, power in the world. The problem is that Peter's had, you know, when it came to the glory of Christ, he was aiming way too low. Jesus came to do something so much greater than what he wanted. And can we not relate to Peter? Maybe I'm the only one in this room that can. But how many of us desire Jesus to make our lives uh, in this world more comfortable and more easy? 
how many of us uh, are, are, are thoughts too much on the things of this world uh, how to have a more meaningful and purposeful existence in this earth rather than meditating on the future life to come and seeing our lives on this world as a pure, pure uh, a precursor to eternity. If you want to know where your heart is, look at your prayers. What do you pray for? Do the things that you pray for, are they revolved around this world and your existence in this world? Or are they prayers that reflect the priority of eternity in your soul? Now, you might look at that and say, well, how is Peter an encouragement? Well, let me read something to you, a quote that I think might sort of drive all this home. Listen, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Aren't those wondrous words? Do you know who wrote that? Peter! Peter, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 16. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. You see, Jesus lovingly rebuked Peter when he got it all wrong. I mean, Peter had effectively tempted Jesus away from his mission in verse 32, and essentially spoke on behalf of Satan. Just like Satan was seeking to derail Jesus from his mission and his temptation, Peter was doing the same thing. Peter couldn't have gotten things more wrong. I want you to hear that. And yet, look how Peter grew. What Peter says many years later in his first epistle shows that he finally understood the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that should give us hope. Jesus transformed Peter as he discipled him, and Jesus will transform you and me as he disciples us as well. And you see, that's good news. If Jesus came to suffer for Peter, for us, it was so that we could begin a life of discipleship. It is so we could begin to deny ourselves in this world and take up our cross so that we could know the life that is truly life and so that we could join with Christ in eternal glory. And so, brothers and sisters, as you struggle to follow Jesus in the way he describes today, I would counsel you, keep your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus, cry out to him, and pray for him to do that work in your heart. If he grew Peter in such a marvelous way through his discipleship, he can do that for you or for I. I hope you're encouraged by this passage. But before we close, I, I do want us just to think a bit further about applying these, this radical discipleship to our lives. And I just want to ask you some questions. What are the things in your life that keep you from following Christ? What are the things that, that grab your attention, that direct your attention away from Christ? What are the things in your life that would cause you to respond like Peter? 
Maybe you're not like Peter in the sense that you're not looking for someone to come and bring political revolution and overthrowing you know, whatever political party you disagree with. Maybe that's not what you're looking for. But maybe you do have false conceptions of what Christ is to do in your life. Maybe you're looking for Him to do certain things in your life that are not consistent with His mission. Maybe you're looking to Jesus... Maybe you're looking to tell Jesus what to do in your life instead of asking Him what you need to do so that you might faithfully serve Him. Maybe it's some idol you have in your heart, and maybe you're following Jesus with the hidden hope that uh, you will get on God's good side, and then He'll give you that idol. But brothers and sisters, that's not self-denial. That's not taking up the cross. That's just trying to use Jesus to get what you want. If that's the case, then I would challenge you, maybe you haven't yet understood the gospel. The gospel is not about getting on God's good side so that he can do you a favor. The gospel is that we haven't been on God's good side so Jesus suffered and died that you could be reconciled to God, not by your works, but by Christ. In light of that gospel, though, brothers and sisters, how could we resist such suffering if Jesus would suffer for us? Because of Christ's love for us, surely it is no burden for us to follow him in this way, even to suffer now for his sake. It reminds me of the words of the martyr and missionary Jim Elliot, who, who rightly said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Sort of sounds like what Jesus said, what Peter said in his epistle. Brothers and sisters, these are words for us to live by. And Christ will not disappoint in his people. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we meditate on his word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your words this morning. God, they are words that, that just hit us right where we are at. And Lord, we, we come to you this morning and we cry out and pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, Lord, to, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, Lord, to meditate upon uh, the life to come. And may we live our lives that way. I know it'll look way different than the world and maybe even some different than some of our Christian friends. But Lord, I pray in the coming days and the weeks ahead that you would work in our hearts and, and show us, Lord, where we are following after the things of the world. Maybe even maybe we are even playing both sides of the, the ditch. We're just we're trying to get our cake and eat it too. And Lord, so really we're not following you at all. Where, wherever we are, Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to our hearts and pray that you would grant us repentance and we would turn to you and follow you. Lord, that, 
that our church would reflect this passage to your glory and praise. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.